IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week. We review albums, we hash out trends. In this episode we'll be talking about new albums by Adrian Linker of Big Thief and Biba Doobie. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? So you know the you know the phrase "pride goes before a fall." I, I think it I think it's in the Bible, or maybe I heard it on a Pedro the Lion album. You know, either either way. But you know, almost immediately after last week's podcast, I felt like we you know knocked that one out of the park. We got to you know, hang with our readers and answer their questions. I go running immediately after that. You know, it's my morning run. Um, I have a, I have a, a, a mix of kind of artsy-leaning new metal on, you know, Perfect Circles, Mare de Noms, White Pony. Oh, you could not be I, more Ian Cohen than this story. <laughs> this is the most the, Ian Cohen story yeah. ever. And I dodge this kindly old, uh, you know, group of individuals who are standing outside their home and then I land wrong on my left foot. I have a faux Jones fracture in my left foot. Now, why oh, am no. I? Yeah, why am I telling you guys this? Um, a, because we care about you. I assume you care about us. But my immediate thought is now that I'm on the shelf, I can't go running for at least six weeks. I thought about like how much am I going to miss out on like the really aggressive emo, screamo, metal, punk stuff that really is crucial in establishing the dynamic between myself and Steve, you know? I'm laid, up for, I'm laid up for six weeks. Like, what if I'm also listening to kind of chilled out, like William Tyler-esque, <laughs> like ambient chugle? Like, right. and, then, and then we're both the same guy. And then, like, all of a sudden, IndieCast just completely loses its tension. So these next, six, these next six weeks will be very interesting, people. It'll be fun. It'll be fun. It'll be like... Oh, wow. Ian all of a sudden likes Jason Isbell even yeah. more than I do. Like, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> I've, been th- I've been thinking a lot about fatherhood and, like, uh, <laughs> and, and as the wet, you know, and it's like right now we are experiencing like maybe the one week of fall like conditions in San Diego. So, well, um, I mean, I'm yeah, in Minnesota is... and it, it snowed. Uh, <laughs> there's like five inches of snow on the ground right now, which is oh. early even for Minnesota. So, I'm going to be even more beardy. And flannelly <laughs> in the weeks ahead. So yeah, that maybe talk, this is like, talk, talking this is like about the horror tour last week was a real monkey's paw situation. Well, I was, you know, there's, uh, I actually have horde tour in this episode's outline as well. So there's, I found a way to shoehorn horde into our conversation. So hopefully we'll get to that. Hell yeah. Uh, That's just a little uh, sneak preview for you all to be looking for the Horde reference in this episode of IndieCast. I want this to be like a bit that we have where we just bring up Horde randomly, uh, no matter what it is we're talking about. But you you mentioned (laughs) last week we did our first mailbag episode and we decided that, you know, we got so many questions and they were all like, for the most part, like really good that... Oh, we should start just doing like a regular mailbag segment in every episode. So we're going to do that now quick before we get into the meat of the episode. And uh, this is a this is a, a, an email that we got from a listener named Sam. Sam, thank you for uh, for writing in. This is what Sam writes. He says, big fan of the pod. 
thanks for taking thanks for taking an episode to talk about Halcyon Digest a few weeks back. Which quick sidebar, I've gotten a lot of comments about the Halcyon Digest episode. I feel like hmm. that's when a lot of people climbed aboard the IndieCast train. Hmm. Um, I don't know. A lot of people seem to like that episode. Anyway, my question is somewhat related to that episode. Ian, what is your <laughs> beef with oh, Centipede HZ? slash Animal Collective's output in the 2010s. I've followed you on Twitter since 2013, and I feel like I've seen you bash that record more than once. It really isn't that bad. Please explain your reasoning, Stephen. Interested to hear your thoughts as well. So that comes from Sam. Yeah, Ian, what's the deal? Why yeah, don't you it... like that record? <laughs> what is the deal with me and Centipede? I think it's called Centipede Hurts. I think it's just stylized that way. But um, Is it? Oh, okay. Look, I don't necessarily... Like, Animal Collective, going from Here Comes the Indian to Meriwether Post Pavilion, and even if you want to include, like, Tomboy as well. Um, some of my, like, one of my favorite runs for any band, like, period. Um, it's really hard to overstate just how much that defined indie rock and, like, kind of changed people's perspectives on, like, what that actually entailed going from the more college rock, pavement-y sort of thing in the 90s to more of, like, a post-rock sort of uh feel in the 2000s but it's not that i think it's a bad album i mean like it's relatively speaking it's like a major step down but we talk a lot in this show about these real iconic noble failures like your be here nows your reflectors like the albums where that it, it just signifies a real shift in time and for I don't think you can, like, if you weren't there in 2012, like, the deflation surrounding Animal Collective with Centipede Hurts, I, I, I just, I remember so vividly, like, when, um, you know, the first singles came out, it's like, okay, this is interesting, it's a little bit busy, it's a bit overcrowded, but, you know, it's Animal Collective, they'll pull this out. And just seeing that brief period where people tried to talk themselves into Centipede Hurts, and then that outward breath of like yeah okay i think i think that they kind of blew it on this one and also Stuart berman's review where he compared it to like a burrito splashing onto a car windshield it to me is not it's not so much that it's a bad album just like a historical signifier when you look at the entire trajectory of the 2010s we right. talk about how in 2013 things went more in a pop direction less beholden to like artful indie and like that is to me the that was the signal right there like that is when the tide really started to turn also i do like panda bear solo output ave terra's got some good songs as well um floridada the one song from painting with i liked that song the day after i heard like i i went on like one of the best first dates of my life and then heard floridada like the next day i'm like this song rules man so i was like in a really good mood so I, I, I don't think it's impossible for them to like regain like to you know to make a great album again. Maybe they're in like a flaming lips holding pattern before they made embryonic or the terror. But yeah, Centipede Hurts is like one for the history books in a way that um a lot of other disappointing or even bad albums aren't in that time. It's just yeah. such a historical artifact. Yeah, I was going to say that I think that the reason why it gets brought up isn't that it's like this terrible record. I think it is like a pretty good album. It's just, as you said, I think you can look at it as an easy signpost of the decline of that aughts era indie that was so Absolutely. prominent. Especially, you know, like we talk about 2009 being the year that 
those bands seemed to have peaked in popularity and esteem. You had, you know, Meriwether the Post Pavilion. You had the Grizzly Bear record, Beckett to Mist. You had uh, Dirty Projectors, uh, that record, Bit to Orca. And I was just yeah. thinking, like, how uh, Dirty Projectors put out their 20, their 2012 record right around Swing the same Low time. Magellan. Yeah. Swing Low Magellan. Swing Low Magellan, which I think People is actually... People like that like, one. It's a quite good record, but... Also, no one talks about it anymore. I mean, yeah. so in a way, Centipede Hertz has more significance because I think people just look at it as that sort of signpost record of like, you know, oh, these bands aren't going to take over the world. You know, yeah. like I think there was this idea in 2009 that like, oh, Animal Collective, they made this sort of relatively poppy record and now they're going to move into this other arena and we're going to have this indie rock revolution just like we had the alternative rock revolution or the sort of garage rock revolution of the early aughts and it was like no that's not going to happen these bands yeah. peaked as like se- like semi-popular fairly popular bands and now they're going to sort of go on the decline and now we're going to have a new generation of, yeah. of bands come in so yeah that would be my feeling on Animal Collective, you know, it'd be fun on, at some point on the show. I feel like I need an excuse to do like a revisit of the Animal Collective discography uh, because I'd, <laughs> I'd like to do a deep dive because I've not listened to those records in a long time and they really were in their era super significant. Like if you were Indian, if you were into indie rock, you had to pay attention to Animal Collective. Yeah, whether you loved them or hated them, they were a significant band. Now it's like they've fallen off the face of the earth. Like you never hear anyone talking about them. It's like if you talk about aughts era mm. uh, indie music, it's like the early aughts and then maybe like Fleet Foxes and yeah. Bonnie Vare. And like those Brooklyn bands have just been sort of memory hold out yeah, of existence. I'll, I'll tell you what, man. But like before, like I'll, I'll leave it at this. I went to see Animal Collective. I think it was 2017. Um, and for those of y'all who attend shows in Southern California, if you've ever been to the observatory in Orange County, like those shows are much, much, much liver than the ones in Los Angeles or San Diego. Like people get hype in Orange County for these shows. And I'll tell you what, like I saw Animal Collective in 2017. It was not like, you know, an outdoor, uh, amphitheater, but like people were going nuts for them, man. Like, yeah, but like, (laughs) You can, they they will have a cult audience. I okay, will but like I'm I'm just gonna say that like that is not the real barometer though because I think any is band it? any band that has like a real audience can do well in Southern California. There's so many people. There's so many different kinds of people. Like if you can't do well in that area in New York, then you're totally screwed. Fair enough. I live in the real America, Ian. <laughs> in the middle of the country, I think oh is where the. I but I say that facetiously, but I do think there's some truth to that. I think that like, there is because you're in a huge market. I think yeah, they ought to be able to do pretty well there. But like I'm just talking about the rest of the country. I just wonder how well they would do. I don't yeah. know. I could be wrong, but I just yeah. I, but certainly in terms of the conversation anyway. Like when people talk about aughts era music, I feel like those bands get overlooked, and I don't think they should i i I guess maybe we need to lead the charge on we need to do like a series on like the late aughts or something yeah just for my own i kind of just want to go back and um see how i feel about those records because i have not like you know like i i put on sung tongs a couple months ago and i I really enjoyed it um which kind of made me want to go like oh what what does feel sound like or strawberry jam? Like I, those records I've not played in several years. So well, 
we we might we might have an episode where we bring Animal Collective back to the real America. <laughs> well, until then, yeah, I, we should probably talk about Adrienne Linker. Yeah, who's from the from the real America. Minnesota. She is from the real America. That's right. Well, it, originally she's from Indianapolis. She was uh, born there. That's where she was in the religious sect or cult, however you want to call it. I think she lived there until she was about six, mm-hmm. and then she moved to uh, Minnesota. She actually lived. Not too far from where I live right now. I think she lived in a suburb called Plymouth, which is pretty close to where I live right now. Uh, she had this uh, sort of pre-fame career as like a child prodigy type musician. She put out a record when she was 13 called Stages of the Sun, which I have not heard that record. I assume that's yeah. probably on YouTube somewhere. And then she put out another record in her early 20s called Hours Were the Birds that came out in 2014. But of course... Her career begins in earnest with the first Big Thief record, which comes out in 2016, called Masterpiece. I really loved that record when it came out. I, I, I put it in my top 10 list that year. It was followed up by Capacity in 2017. I love that record even more. I would say that that is still my favorite record that she has made in any incarnation. And, of course, she's been one of the most prolific artists of uh, indie rock in the last several years. She put out her first solo record, or I guess her... I guess I don't know where it would fall in the lineage of like her childhood records, but like her, I guess, first post Big Thief solo record, Abby Kiss in 2018. And then she really achieves this sort of critical breakthrough in 2019 when Big Thief puts out two records, UFOF and Two Hands. And that really makes them this like critical darling officially mm-hmm. with those two albums. Although we'll get into this in our episode, I still prefer those first two records. And I'm curious about the sort of arc that she's been on mm-hmm. in, a, in, the, in, the, in the past few years. But anyway, today there's two new solo records from Adrienne Linker, both recorded during quarantine. Uh, one is called Songs, more of a conventional solo record. The other is called Instrumentals. Essentially, it's just two long guitar tracks that she's playing. Uh, so that kind of feels more of like an ancillary record but again we'll talk about that anyway i have a lot to say about these albums but i'm curious ian my sense from you is that you are not as much of a big thief fan maybe as i am i'm just curious what you think of her the band and and these albums well i i do like the possibility that this is like adrian lanker's version of sweatsuit or something like that (laughs) where Like, I, I wish that she, uh, you know, did a little bit more to play up, like, the dichotomy in that. Like, we're, but, um, yeah, we had a question in our mailbag last week asking about artists we'd like to hear solo albums from. And for me, that was, that was a surprisingly tough one to answer because I, I like bands and so many of the artists I like otherwise are already solo artists. Um, and you could think, well, you know, Ezra from Vampire Weekend, love to hear his solo album because he has such a strong uh, artistic personality. But I think Father of the Bride sort of kind of is like a solo record. I think most right. really strong uh, artistic personalities end up making a de facto solo record within their own band. And, um, you know, for it's been, it's been a big week for NPR solo, like bands going solo, like Jeff Tweedy, Matt Berninger. And, you know, those didn't interest me as much because to me they became kind of like less of the focal point for me in the albums. Like I like their backing musicians and I, uh, I'm not really thrilled when artists of that ilk kind of do what they were doing in the band, except quieter. So um, the first Adrian Lanker out like solo album of Biscuits didn't really leave much of an impact on me, but um, 
and I, I really appreciate Big Thief as a band because like they really put forth like they're a band. You see all of them on the cover. Uh, you, they the instrumental interplay is really important in the shows. I think they play like kind of four in a row, like Grizzly Bear used to. And you know, parts of UFOF sounded like American football to me with like the altered tunings and the odd time signatures. But um, you know, when I when I listened to this record, I did it. You know, just like okay. I'm sitting down in quarantine. She's in quarantine. Let's get in the mood. And I was just shocked about like how directly this album hit for me. You know, her lyrics don't always hit particularly directly. I think they're a little bit more opaque. Um, but I love the fact that it was so like raw and pretty and like in, in a way that uh, big thief albums are. But it gives me an ability to like focus on the person making it, which makes me. Uh, connect to it more emotionally like it's an album like I want to return to to lean into the lyrics and um, the production also is really really interesting like I think there's like rain you can hear the rain in one of the songs like they're very big on room sound so um, and also sounds it sounds very well suited for fall when we we got a little bit into autumn album so you know Big Thief like um, UFOF I could appreciate that as just like a pretty album, an event record. Um, but this one makes me want to kind of know more of what's actually going on in Adrian Lenker's head, which is um, a different experience than I usually have with, you know, Big Thief. I mean, they're a band I liked. Um, I think the I liked Masterpiece. I thought the, 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 the title track sounded like Heartless Bastards or something right, like that. Right. And I thought they were just like kind of this Midwest band on Saddle Creek. And then I find out they're... You know, actually based out of Brooklyn. I liked Capacity as well. Like they were a band that was perched on that. I'm gonna put them at like 25 to number 30 on my year end list. Like I, I appreciate that it's an event for other people. It doesn't blow me. Like I'm not emotionally invested in it, but I feel like I have a possibility of being like emotionally invested in this one uh, in a way that I hadn't been with previous Big Thief records and also instrumentals. I probably won't like no offense to it, but I'm probably not going to listen to that again. Yeah. Uh, that, that that definitely feels more of like the follow-up in a way that I know there's a lot of people that love two hands and even make the oh, argument yeah. that that's better than UFOF. I don't share that. I think other than that song, not and a couple yeah. other tracks on that record, that record definitely to me feels like demos that didn't really get like put into the kind of shape that maybe yeah. would have really made those songs shine um or maybe you could have just folded some of those songs into it's UFOF kinda, and yeah it's it a, it's kind of like the uh what's it weird era continued like right um if we're thinking of like the deer hunter trajectory like UFOF was I don't know the micro castle and um that was like I mean we can get into this idea of like you know what big thief's future holds uh for yeah. them like where are they situated but yeah you uh, two hands. I think that was a lot of that was like just kind of momentum from UFOF. Right, right, and you know it's in regard to uh, songs and instrumentals. By the way, I, I agree with you with instrumentals. I yeah, I, again, it feels like more of like an afterthought in a way. Although, um, you know, if if you're looking for chill out music at the end of the night, yeah. it seems like that could be good to put on. But songs definitely seems like the main attraction. And I had a similar reaction to you. Uh, where I I responded more immediately to songs than I did to even like UFOF, and I think like to me the songs just seem uh, a little like better crafted, a little bit more direct. I I I like Adrian Linker working in this lane where 
it's like an early Elliot Smith, Sun Kill Moon type vibe where mm. it's just like one person with a guitar. Uh, I, I believe she went through a breakup before writing these songs. So the songs definitely seem informed by, you know, both the isolation of quarantine and whatever, you know, angst or loneliness that she was feeling uh, in her personal life at the time. So it definitely has a very strong vibe to it. You know, I, I want to go back to what you were saying about, you know, solo artists who go away from their bands to make records. And I have to say that, like, when I first got into Big Thief, the thing that I responded to was that they sounded like a band playing in a room together. And yeah. we've talked about this in other episodes that in indie rock, especially, it's, it seems like lately you don't get a lot of that in bands. It seems like it's one auteur who is working in a studio, sometimes playing most of the instruments themselves, or if they aren't doing that, they're you know having people sort of record their parts remotely and then they sort of fit it all together like a mad scientist. And that's how they're putting the record together. Whereas Big Thief, they had this very sort of like natural aesthetic to them uh, where you felt like, oh, yeah, these people are actually like, you know, playing together all the time. They're probably like living in the same house. You know, there's a real great vibe to what they're doing. And, um, you know, when that uh, first record came out, Masterpiece, like I wasn't surprised that that didn't take off critically because, you know, you you likened the title track to Heartless Bastards, which I think is uh, apt. I mean, they sounded like an all-country band, yeah, essentially, which is not something that in, you know, <laughs> now is going to set the world on fire critically. Um, and they moved away from that more sort of direct, primal, you know, gut bucket sound. And it's, it's gotten more sort of meandering and ethereal. And I think on capacity, they struck a really good balance between still having that band sound, but also having more of a distinct personality where it wasn't so easy to compare them to other bands. Like, And I think mm-hmm. that comes from Linker, like her songwriting. I think for me, like, where... And I, I'm not even saying it's a bad thing necessarily, but like I feel like their personality of, as a band on those next two records, it bleeds more into who Linker is as a solo artist more. And for me, they seem like less of a band in a way, yeah. like like recently, and they seem more of like like a backing band for Linker. And I, I just feel like the gap between what she does on her own and what she does in the band has shrunk. And for me, that has detracted a little bit, I think, from what they do. I don't know if that makes sense at all. It does. It's interesting because, like, both um, Buck Meek and uh, the drummer have put out, like, Buck's solo album comes out, I believe, in January. And the drummer um, had put out, like, kind of an album of, like, uh, it's like ambient or, like, noise earlier this year. So, I mean, I think, but. In a way, they do remind me of like Deer Hunter a bit in that like you get like maybe Bucks the locket punt like the the Lotus Plaza of it all. <laughs> yeah, you've been like uh, really comparing them to uh, Deer Hunter a lot uh, lately, I, and I think, but I think that's kind of accurate when you think of like you know a band that's like really got the juice critically and is very right. very prolific and just um, you know every time they drop something like it's an actual event, and I think you know. Big Thief's in that spot right now because I, I when we think like big picture, uh, you know, particularly compared to, you know, Jeff Tweedy and Matt Berninger, it's like our Big Thief, are like, are we going to be doing like a 10 year anniversary, you know, in 2029 20, about uh, UFOF thinking about like Halcyon Digest and 
what happened to all the big thief fans or are they going to be like a national or wilco type band that just keeps kind of pushing on and reaches this new level of popularity you know like you know yeah you brought this up like we were talking about this before we started recording and i and it's a really interesting question to me because i think the similarity between big thief and, and deer hunter isn't just that they had these big event records is that they were putting out a lot of records at the same time. Mm -hmm. And and Bradford Cox was putting out solo records. And I wonder, you know, look, I'm a guided by voices fan, so I'm never going to (laughs) like, you know, criticize someone for putting a lot of music, especially if you feel inspired. And by the way, I should say that it it sounds like big thief has already recorded their next album. It sounds like they did that this summer. So it it sounds like there could be a big thief album at the end of the year, or maybe early uh, 2021. Um, I think when you look at Wilco and the national bands like that, when you like think of their classic periods, it's like each album uh, feels like its own world and its own sort of sonic personality, as, especially with Wilco. Like if, if you think from like AM to like Sky Blue Sky, you know, yeah. each record has its own personality. And I wonder if Big Thief is falling into that deer hunter trap where like, you're putting out a lot of records and they're all good, but like they're not terribly different from one another and they don't necessarily chart a progression. Like yeah. I wonder, like I, I can chart a progression from masterpiece to capacity. I feel like the gap between capacity and like UFOF isn't as dramatic. And then two hard, like, like two hands is definitely of that same world of UFOF. And then the Adrian Linker records, it's like, I like them all, but like mm-hmm. they all seem similar. I just wonder, like, like, are they going to take the next step in a different direction, or is it going to be all these sort of crunchy, hippie folk records? Yeah, when you when you read like the interviews, like they are re- like they are very earnest about like I'm just a vessel for the music to flow through me. There's and I don't know, maybe like a people who are like 10 years younger than us might start reading that stuff and think of them like animal collective, like who are these hippies? And also we, I, I can't believe we haven't brought up Buck Meek's hats yet. Um, <laughs> like this, this guy, man, he, 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 he's just pulling the ultimate heat check every time he steps out the door, like his hats, like we're, we're reaching like Pharrell type territory right here or Dudley do right. He is, I mean, I gotta admire it, man. Like, I, I yeah, you know, I'm 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 pro indie rock hats, by the way. Yeah, I, you know, please wear colorful hats. Uh, you know, he should start doing like the Jeff uh, Amet hats. You know, like the program, <laughs> like those, those puffy hats that he would wear in the early '90s, like with the tank tops and stuff, and like the basketball shorts. I think that would be a good look for him to rock or someone else to rock out there Um, yeah that see everyone's trying to like you know do this whole 90s thing and we'll talk about this later in the episode obviously with Biba Doobie but like I really do think that kind of quasi hippie grunge thing like whether you're talking about like Jeff Ament or like even Blind Melon that is just so ripe for the picking man like that please like please someone try to be like the I don't know 2020 I couldn't. I can't remember the other guys in Pearl Jam. Mike McCready. That's it. Right. Well, yeah. Mike. Well, yeah. McCready had like the Stevie Ray Vaughan look. Yeah. Too, early on in Pearl Jam, like around ten era, lots of scarves and and bandanas vests, and stuff. leather vests and leather whatnot. vests and stuff. You know. Well, speaking of nineties, and this is where I'm going to bring in the Horde tour. I do think that Big Thief does have that Horde type vibe to them. 
and I feel like when they started getting a little bit more famous, and when you get more famous, of course, you start getting more detractors. Like, that's the thing that people would jump on about Big Thief uh, as being like, you know, because they, they do have this sort of nature kid aesthetic to them yeah. like in the way that they, that they present themselves. And look, I'm receptive to that. And I'll say, too, that, you know, for all of the... Uh, like you read their interviews and there is something, like you said, very earnest about it. But I do like how that translates to them in terms of how they carry themselves as a band. Like if you go see them, they're a great live band. Yeah. And um, and that's another thing why, you know, when some of the records start to get a little bit more spare and more sort of just focused on, on Linker's voice, although I love her voice, I missed the the muscularity of of some of those early records that I think has been lost a little bit. I think that's why people love that song not so much because yeah. that was like such a powerful song. But it's that song's somewhat of an anomaly on those two albums. Mm-hmm. I think that song's like a much it's much louder uh, than than most of what's on the rest of those records. But like they're also like louder live. So I I, I don't know. Part of me like kind of wants them to to lean on that a little bit more. I just wonder too, you know, again, I love artists who are prolific, but I do think maybe it would be great if they just sort of buckled down and channeled all the songs that they were writing into like one great album. Yeah. But also, you know? I mean, that kind of is what happened with like deer hunter and animal collective. They like took a couple of years off and then all of a sudden like people, you know, weren't as interested in them anymore. Um, right. But, That's uh, true. I, who's to say, because, but like the thing is, uh, we're also talking about uh, a time when live music isn't happening. So like Big Thief, you know, isn't going to stop making a record because they have to do this like big tour where they're playing every single festival on the face of the earth. So I think maybe something like their like their output is, may become like the norm for bands. That's true. You know? That's or, true. Conversely, like they might make like a more muscular album because they can't say, "Well, we're gonna just gonna build these songs out when they we play them live." Like, who knows? Yeah, well, I'm curious to hear this new album that they've been working on. Um, if it moves more yeah. in this sort of more sort of, uh, I guess stripped back thing, or if they're gonna, you know, maybe get that masterpiece, you know, oomph back into their music. I'll, I'll be curious mm-hmm. to hear it. But for now, I think we both are on the same page with songs. Both like songs. Uh, her, I guess her main solo record that she's putting out today. So definitely go check that out. Uh, let's move over to Biba Doobie. Yes. Uh, one of the buzzy <laughs> indie artists of, of 2020. Uh, you know, we've talked a lot about Bartiz Strange on this show. He's he's one of the big ones. I feel like Biba Doobie um, is probably even bigger than him just because she's like on a bigger record label. Uh, yeah, just like it's not, with all due respect to Bartiz, like Biba Doobie has 18 million 18 million monthly Spotify listeners. That's more than like the 1975. That's like more than like Metallica. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, and she does seem like this indie pop star that has arrived fully formed. Although, of course, she has been kicking around for a couple years now. Her name, of course, is Beatrice Laos. She was born in 2000. She's a Filipino-born British singer-songwriter. Uh, she's been putting out EP since uh, 2018 on the record label Dirty Hit, which is the same record label that the 1975 are on. She actually toured with the 1975 on the Music for Cars tour. She's also toured with Claro. And I feel like aesthetically, you could probably put her 
in the same camp as Claro, as well as, well as Soccer Mommy, who hmm. Soccer Mommy is so young, but can we call her the godmother of this sort of like 90s <laughs> retro indie pop sound, yeah. uh, you know, clean, like for, for, for Zoomers? Yeah, clean, like her 2018 record, which, you know, I think it, it's a fantastic record. I like it more than Color Theory, which came out this year, which is also pretty strong. But I, the more and more distance we get from it, I start to think that clean is maybe the most... I don't want to, I don't know if influential is the right word because I think when we see trends pop up, it's just there's more focus on a lot of people doing the same thing rather than oh, I'm gonna to try to sound like soccer mommy or like you know with the strokes. Like it, it was people were more looking for bands who sound like that. And but you know, the more distance we get from clean, the more I see it as like maybe the like the most impactful indie like one of the most impactful indie rock albums of the past several years. Like this set the stage for this melding of, you know, not this 90s alternative uh, mode of music, which was always sort of popular, but melding it with like Michelle Branch or Avril Lavigne or, um, you know, the minivan era Sheryl Crow. Um, like this really set it like this is like this is the sound of indie rock now. And you appreciate it a lot more when you hear just how many bands sound like Soccer Mommy but are nowhere near as good. Well, and I would also, you know, almost put like Stranger in the Alps in that same category as well. The, the first oh, yeah. CD Bridgers record. It definitely had, it's, I don't think it's as much in that 90s zone, but there's definitely some of that like coffee shop, like 90s, like alternative rock type mm-hmm. sound to that record that really does it well. Um, and Tony Berg produced that, and he actually had a hand in a lot of those original <laughs> records that came out in the 90s, so that's another huh. connection there. But uh, anyway, the, the Biba Doobie, her full-length solo debut came out last week. It's called Fake It Flowers. And um, I was thinking about this, and look, we always, like, we're two music critics, uh, you know, hovering around 40, so we're <laughs> apt to make 90s comparisons to everything. But is it fair to say that, like, if Soccer Mommy is the Nirvana and Claro is the Pearl Jam, that, like, Biba Doobie is, like, the Stone Temple Pilots of this? Because, and I don't mean that as a rip, because I like Stone Temple Pilots. To me, where that analogy fits is that I think what Biba Doobie is doing is similar to those artists, but her songs just seem much poppier and more obvious to me. And and also, consequently, they seem more poised to like actually be hits and like be played on the radio. Like like this record, uh, you know, I've read reviews of this album. You know, critics seem like a little bit. Uh, I mean, I read really good reviews. I think the Pitchfork review was like kind of like okay. It was like a six point four. I think they gave the record, mm-hmm. um, and it it reminded me a bit of our twenty thirteen conversation where you know, we were talking about how that was the year where this generation of indie rockers were coming along that were sort of foregrounding the poppiest music of like the eighties and nineties in, into their music and, and really kind of setting aside the more conventional punk and indie influences that we associate with this genre. And I almost think I was listening to fake it flowers and I'm like, well, this is like the next progression to like mm-hmm. from that. It's like, cause it's like even like poppier and it's like the reference points are even like less sort of critically reputable or at least formally reputable. It's like, you know, this is, like she's talked about like Nora Ephron romantic comedies being a reference yeah. point for her lyrically. You know, she's talking, you know, she has a song about Stephen Malkmus, but like, yeah, there's nothing remotely pavement ish about her records. Um, you know, it, it does sound like the kind of music that like you would hear like in a CW, uh, you know, soap opera or like in a friends episode, 
you know, like like music that like thirty four year olds were listening to in nineteen ninety eight, and like <laughs> and like now that's the music that Zoomers love, which I think yeah. is like that's one of the hilarious things about music history, how these things happen, uh, because I mean, yeah, th- th- this record it's basically just like. Um, like if the Cranberries made a pop punk record. I mean, that's what I was thinking a lot. It does not sound like Salvation. Like that's the <laughs> that's the one time where Cranberries act like they kind of made like a pop punk ska song about not doing drugs, which makes it even more of a ska song. It doesn't sa- it doesn't sound quite like that. <laughs> no, but like that song Care, for instance, which I think yeah. is the first track on the record. It, it yeah. has like a Cranberries sounding guitar hook, and her vocal sounds a little bit like Dolores or Reardon from that band. Um, and she kind of runs through like different styles on the record. There's like like more sort of coffee shop folk songs on the record. There's emo-ish songs on the record. There's a song have... called Emo Song. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's pretty on the nose. I think you could accuse this record of being a little superficial. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a ton of depth on there. On the other hand, she's only 20 years old, mm-hmm. um, which leads me to believe that she's going to improve as a songwriter. Maybe she'll have some of that lyrical depth as she gets a little bit older and a little bit more experienced. But like, I got to say like this record to me, like it's a pretty immediate likable record. I, I don't know if it's going to like change my life or anything, but like when it's on, I tend to enjoy it. Yeah. For, for me, it's, um, where to even begin? Like, I, I think that a lot of, I actually put this on our most anticipated albums list when we did that episode a month or so back, because, uh, I think like I always appreciate when I'm like thrown a bone and given like even the slightest window into the thoughts of like a younger generation. Um, you know, TikTok and I've still not really gone in two feet with that. But to see like, oh, Biba Doobie. Well, people really love her. She's like actually popular. And also it sounds like music that I listened to when I was 16. Cool. Maybe this will like allow me to relate to a younger generation on a certain level. But when I hear this album and, you know, the lyrics are kind of intentionally a bit like surface level, like uh, Diet Red is kind of hilarious and like how um, I, I, I kind of it's like, you know, it, it very, very straightforward, like scribbling your like uh, trapper keeper, like fuck you type lyricism. But I hear this, I hear, like you saying, cranberries, I hear like Veruca Salt, um, like maybe not American Thighs so much as like Eight Arms to Hold You era Veruca <laughs> wow. Salt. They're going for uh, the second uh, record. Yeah, look, you hear Volcano Girls in uh, Trader Joe's sometimes, but, um, and to, it, it, it doesn't sound like, it doesn't sound like it was made in the 90s to me. Like I, when I hear this, it does sound like, kind of 90s style alt rock, but like with more of a polish of, you know, Avril Lavigne or Michelle Branch or what have you. Um, but in in the same way that I hear a band like on a completely different side of things, like Higher Power or Narrowhead, um, these bands that sound like um, kind of the B-list of 90s alt rock. Right. Like, like look uh, like local like I love local age but like let's talk when we're talking about bands that like maybe had one MTV hit and like kind of faded into the periphery it's like or sponge sponge yeah well yeah wax ecstatic like we are very pro wax ecstatic on this uh, podcast we, we, we could do a sponge episode that's how much yeah we Vin, shout, shout to shout to Vinny Dombrowski um riding but, pinata man <laughs> but um yeah it's like 
okay, it's cool. Like they're doing this sound and I have like a good grounds to like assess it. But also I sold those CDs back to disco round, you know, like uh, there's a reason that happened. And with this one, I do think that um, I would like to think that I actually said on Twitter the other day, it's like, I think too many bands are like trying to emulate not just Nirvana's sound or Smashing Pumpkin's sound, but like Nirvana's kind of um, ethical ground, like, but I was wondering, like, where where is the new Bush? Where is the new Stone Temple Pilots? The band that just wants to make these, like, just trashy pop hits. And in some way, Biba Doobie does it. Um, but also it has this kind of added onus upon being, like, the voice of a generation. Of, like, this is what people listen to on TikTok. Uh, this is, like, kind of the new Vanguard. In a way that a lot of dirty hit artists... Uh, try to be I know Matt Matty Healy back when he did interviews would talk about like how he dirty hit was in a way like him making up for like the guilty feels as like a band of white guys um a lot of the artists you see on dirty hit whether we're talking about um you know pale waves or Rina Sawanyama or uh Japanese house are like more reflective of the diversity that's um you know coming to the indie realm so like in a way there's like a lot more pressure on this album than there was on, say, Stone Temple Pilots or Silver Chair, for that matter. And, um, you know, it sounds cool. Like, the album sounds cool. Do, have I thought about it since I've listened to it? I mean, not really. But I think, it, critically, it's, like, done really well. But I think there's kind of, sometimes you'll see, like, a kind of, if you can't beat them, join them sort of approach nowadays, particularly with, like, the line between, you know, quote, indie and pop all but disintegrating it's like you don't want to be the person who you know 10 years from now looks like a grump because they didn't understand the thing that 18 year olds were listening to and um yeah i think wait wait and see approach for me with this one yeah um, but i but i feel like this record you know as you've said like if you're like an older music critic or something this is like pretty easy to digest there's like definitely is. music among that's popular among zoomers that like i hear and i'm like i don't know what this the is hell not this for, is yeah this, this is, is not, not for me, me. <laughs> i'm not going to like even like wade into this i'm not going to be like oh yeah what do, what do you what are the kids listening to now like that stephen Bashemi, uh you know skateboard yeah. uh, hello gif. fellow kids hello yeah. fellow kids like there's definitely music like that where i wouldn't even like try to insert myself, but I feel like this record is um, almost courting that in a way. Like we mentioned the Stephen Malkmus song. She has a song called I Want to Be Stephen Malkmus, which I think yeah, you... Who can relate? <laughs> <laughs> well, and in our outline, didn't you like liken that to Booksmart, like that movie, like where yeah. all these, like, like these young girls are into like older indie rock? That Like, like they... yeah, Booksmart was like, a, it, it was a good movie in a way, but I think like there's a... I don't, and I don't want to say this is a similar thing because like Biba Dewey really is 20 years old and, you know, is like, I think this album comes by its influences, honestly, but there's sometimes like uh, in teen movies, uh, a tendency for adults to write teenagers as they want to imagine themselves as teenagers rather than actual teenagers. So with Booksmart, it was kind of like you would hear them listening to LCD sound system and death grips and like I, I counted on two hands the amount of 2013 best new music bands that popped up right. in that, but um, yeah, I think there's sometimes a tendency with like teen material for uh, people in their 30s or 40s to kind of like want the teens to reflect their own politics and their own sort of tastes, and um, 
yeah, I mean, crying to Stephen Malkmus, what went like what the song I want to be Stephen Malkmus. Like, do Payment fans even cry to Stephen Malkmus, or is that just like, you know, right. just the kind of like Twitter argo where people are like, oh, I'm like crying to this, or you know, they have to be very demonstrative about it. So you know, we could take her at a word that yeah, she's in the song's called "I Wish I Was Stephen Malkmus." I think I said I want to yeah. be Stephen Malkmus, but anyway. Um, I think two things can be true at the same time that, yeah, you know, I'm sure she weeps to Wowie Zowie all the time. And then um, that's also a good thing to get music critics' attention. If you're going to drop a Stephen Malkmus ref in your yeah. early single, you know, the graying, you know, 43-year-old music critic will go, oh, wow, okay, well, let me check this out. And, you know, so I think there's some of that as well. There is, I think, again, a, like a pan-generational appeal mm-hmm. to her music maybe than like a lot of artists her age but like, and I think you made a good point about this is that it's not um, slavishly retro. I don't think it sounds like it was recorded in the '90s. I think that there's certain qualities that uh, harken back to again, like the poppiest versions of alt rock, especially from like the late '90s, more than like the early '90s, mm-hmm. is what I hear. But um, she's definitely speaking to her own people, her own yeah. generation here, and I mean. I think that, again, essentially, this is a record that's going to appeal to people that don't care about the context of indie rock. That yeah. Maybe they know Soccer Mommy, but they're not going to care about the progression of, like, you know, that record came out first and this record might be biting it a little bit. It's going to be for people that just hear, you know, songs like Care or Worth It on a playlist and are like, that's a catchy song. I like that. You know, it, it, it's music that you you hear on a streaming platform and you like it immediately, you know, like um, this record, like I remember the hooks. I cannot remember a single verse. And I think that like works to its advantage because this it, it reminds me a bit of like the first 1975 album in that regard. Like I vehemently like shout out to Jason Green, great guy, great writer, but I vehemently disagreed with the content of his 1975 uh, self-titled review, except that all the songs basically go like verse, chorus, verse, and there's like no bridges at all. This album like is very well suited to be uh, taken in bite-sized bits, like for TikTok or like if you hear 30 seconds on Spotify or an Apple Music preview, you're probably going to hear the chorus and the chorus is always hit. So it's very well designed to that degree in a way that like a song like say Circle the Drain by Soccer Mommy, like which is a five minute song and has much more of a build to it. Like this one's much more direct and hence this is why Biba Doobie is like 18 million Spotify followers. Right. Yeah. Yeah, Like the average listener's not sitting there going, where are the bridges? Like I wish there were more bridges here. You know, I think again, if it comes up on your playlist or on your Spotify random or whatever it is, these songs are very likable right away mm-hmm. and i it, which just leads me to believe that she i mean she's already huge i think she if you haven't heard of her already i think you will be hearing a lot about her uh in the months ahead 18.0001 million thanks to this episode <laughs> All right, we have now reached the part of our episode that we call Recommendation Corner, where Ian and I recommend something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? All right, so one of the themes that tie this podcast together is that we often, we we always bring up like lists, like, you know, the Rolling Stone list, 
old pitchfork lists. And it's like, why, why are these things so important to us? Well, I think if, especially if you're trying to like reverse engineer music fandom, it's important to like find out uh, what were the major things back then. And, you know, it's, it can be kind of disappointing even in modern times, like as, you know, the, they get more consensus based and uh, it's just like a rearranging of like the most popular stuff that you kind of miss out on that second layer of things that were like acclaimed and maybe popular, but not something that uh, was, you know, elite. And one of the bands that um, I would, that I got kind of referred to in the nineties uh, was a band called Ida. Um, it's, it, it just popped up randomly. Like a couple people started talking about them and like, I got them confused. Like I knew they were like a late nineties, early two thousands band, uh, I believe they were from New York. They were like a duo uh, and then became a trio. And I was stuck in uh, the emergency, uh, stuck in urgent care, getting my foot looked after. So it's like, I'm going to check, I'm going to check out Ida. Like they were a band that was talked about as like kind of being a little twee, a little slow core. Um, and I listened to their album, I Know About You from 1996. Also, I'd gotten them confused with Ivy and Idaho which are two kind of like twee-ish slowcore bands. And and I think to myself, like, where has this been all my life? Like, this is what this album I know about you sounds, it sounds a lot like low. Like the low comparisons are impossible to ignore because it's like two people singing in harmony almost constantly uh, over very slow tempos, but kind of more Rainer Maria-esque. Like there's something undefinably emo about this band uh they also signed to polyvinyl later on in their career so that and you look back at their pitchfork reviews from the late 90s early 2000s and they got shit on so that means they're emo too um but i would recommend this band it, this band particularly for people who are looking for more autumnal slash winter uh type songs um there's bells there's acoustic guitars there's you know just very sweet love songs and it's and it just, I always look for this kind of, like, if you're just, like, digging around in Spotify, like, hitting that oil well where it's a band that you haven't really heard of before, but they're still kind of new to you. And that is so much harder to come by, particularly uh, since Spotify fans also, like, tend to be pretty restrictive. It's like, oh, what do I kind of like that sort of sounds like low? And it's like, oh, Red House Painters. I'll heard all of them. But, um... Ida is a band that uh, I think a lot of bands, if you're into the sort of music I'm into, like the softer autumnal side of emo, they probably like Ida. So I would start with I Know About You uh, and work your way forward. Like a very rich vein of music to tap here. Very cool. Excited to check that out. The record I'm going to be talking about is called Optisma. It's by a band called Songhoi Blues. This album mm-hmm. is out today. And Songhoi Blues, they're a band from Mali. Uh, they're a North African desert blues band. If you've heard of Bambino, Tenorwin, Mdu Makdar, they're in a similar vein. And it's really you know, fascinating to me. If you're the type of person who derives a lot of pleasure from like hard riffing bluesy rock you know you would think that there's not a lot of that music being made by like american bands certainly like prominent like great american bands of course, obviously if you dig deep certainly into like bar band type scenes you're gonna find groups like that but <laughs> Derek truck still going strong and hey Tedeschi Trucks, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about them, probably not on this podcast. But anyway, mm-hmm. uh, really like the best bands making that kind of music today, like again, like 
ZZ Top, Dire Straits type rock <laughs> are all these bands from from North Africa. And Songhoi Blues, this record definitely fits in that vein. I would say it's also probably more upbeat than those records. There's a real energy to them, a real sense, again, of optimism, as is alluded to in the album title. But if you like, you know, hard rhythm sections, if you like really great guitar solos, uh, this record is is going to hit you right where you uh, live and breathe. Um, and I guess this is a record that I would shoehorn into an indie rock podcast because the latest album was produced by Matt Sweeney. Of course, Matt Sweeney has been involved in so many different indie projects. He is a bit of a zealot, I think, in the indie rock scene. You know, he seems to be in every corner uh, of, of, of many things that have happened uh, significantly in the last 30 years. Uh, but I think he's probably best known for his band Chavez, which was one of the great sort of like guitar hero indie rock bands of of the 1990s. And uh, I think that makes him a very comfortable fit as a producer of this record. Uh, because again, I feel like uh, in terms of American bands, uh, it's hard to come by really great bands that are playing this kind of music uh, these days, but if you go to North Africa, it just seems like you're just tripping over guitar heroes left and right uh, that just have this great sort of trance-like quality to them. I mean, they come from the desert. This music has the vastness of the desert. Uh, mm. It has the the sort of sweep uh, that you would associate with that landscape. Um, but again, I think Songhoi Blues. I think one thing that would set them apart, maybe from some of these other bands, is just their energy and their enthusiasm. Um, so. I think we could all use a shot of that these days. You know, if you obviously right. we have Ida, that is for I guess like if you're going for like the sort of uh, more overcast part of autumn, uh, then put on this record if you you know want that shot of adrenaline maybe early in the morning. So I think we got a little bit of both. We've got the yeah. Saturday night and Sunday morning uh, double shot here in recommendation corner. So um, Indycast double shot. You cast double shot. Yeah, we baby. need to like we we need we need to have like that be a bit. We need the button. Yeah, we need we need the zoo crew button that we can yeah. uh, that we can hit at the end. Uh, well, I think that is all we have for this week uh, on IndieCast. So thank you again for listening to our show. If you like us, please leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you wherever else you get your pods. Uh, but again, thank you for your support. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back with more reviews and news and trends and all the rest next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie, and I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. More IndieCast double shots. 